Each generation, through its trials and its triumphs, valleys and plateaus, provides a trove of lessons for the generations that follow them. The fight for equity is endless, always requiring us to innovate and preserve simultaneously. We advance by building on the work of those who've gone before us, and many of them are still among us to put us on game. Gen Activist is an intergenerational podcast presented by Rosa Rebellion, a platform for creative activism by and for women of color. We are setting a table for intergenerational dialogue and collective disruption. Imagine it as a historical digital archive remastered for contemporary use and permanent preservation. These are our stories told by us for us. So get hyped for your co-hosts. Rosa Rebellion co-founders Virginia Cumberbatch, myself, Megan Harding, and the matriarch of Virginia's maternal family and the anchor of this podcast, someone we affectionately call G-Mom, Dr. Sylvia Russo. Gen activist, yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, y'all, we're super excited today. We have two of the founders of Podoristas with us, and we're just going to take a second to introduce you to these amazing women. We have Carmen Perez Jordan. She's the president and CEO of The Gathering for Justice, a movement dedicated to eliminating the racial inequities in the justice system. Carmen is also the co-founder of the Justice League NYC, which is dedicated to juvenile justice and a board member of the historic Women's March. So she is busy, y'all. She's busy doing amazing work. And we also have Elsa Collins. She is a social impact consulting, working at the nexus of sports, entertainment, and culture. She is the co-founder of This Is About Humanity, a movement focused on helping vulnerable families at the U.S.-Mexico border. These are two women after my own heart. And y'all, just a little bit about Podoristas. Podoristas is an organization that was founded by eight amazing Latinas. And their purpose is to build a community that inspires, affirms, and informs Latinas, whether it's about current events, raising bilingual children, or how to ask for a raise. And their purpose is to help Latinas leverage their power, not just in their own lives and families, but also within their communities. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the pod. And so we just wanted to start off with y'all telling us a little bit about your personal journey, how you got to your work. We know as women of color, um, a lot of times our work, the impetus for that work is our own lived experience, or perhaps recognizing where our voices and our lived experience have not been honored, valued, or elevated. And so if y'all wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about that journey and how the two of y'all had come to know each other. And we can start with you, Carmen. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me um, and for allowing me to share my journey with all of you. Um, so I am from a small farm town outside of Los Angeles uh, uh, by the name of Oxnard, California, where the strawberry fields meet the ocean. And I grew up um, the youngest of five to two farm workers. Um, my mother and my father initially started working um, in the fields, um, but my father is Chicano, so that means that um, he was born in the United States um, in 1924, and my mother was born in Mexico in 1944. And so um, they really were working class. Um, I didn't know I was poor until I went away to college and I couldn't afford it. Um, but I grew up um, in a community that was extremely diverse. My principal, my teachers, my basketball coach, um, my track coach, they were all, um, you know, African-American or 
uh, folks uh, that were people of color. And so I grew up in a Chicano, Black, um, and Samoan community um, and uh, didn't know anything different, right? Really diverse. Um, but in my community, there was over-policing, um, there was, uh, you know, street organizations. Um, there were a lot of things that, you know, when I went away to college, a lot of my peers never experienced. Um, and so um, I think what helped me um, uh, become the person that I am was really based on where I grew up and the experience that I had. Um, but what really shaped me uh, was the fact that I had a positive outlet. I had the ability to play sports. Um, and so I gained a family outside of my immediate family through sports. I gained confidence on the court. Um, and I also uh, was a team player. And when um, I was 17, there was something that happened in my life. Um, my sister was killed and she was buried on my 17th birthday. Her and I were a day apart. Um, and something profound happened. Um, the police and the, I believe it was a district attorney asked my parents, do you want to press charges, um, you know, against the person that took your sister's life? And my father said something so profound that has forever changed my life. He said, I can never take another mother's child away. And so that kind of became the catalyst of uh, me dedicating my life to going and serving people who are directly impacted by incarceration and by violence um, and simply injustice. Um, the work that I do, um, whether it's in the prisons or in the community is to change um, this trajectory from black and brown communities and interrupt the pipeline into incarceration and also to uh, stop police brutality. I am committed um, to affirming that black lives matter um, because I truly believe that once Black people are free, my people will be free. Um, many Latinos have benefited uh, through um, the plight and the fight for civil rights. Um, and then the way in which I met Elsa is one, um, we found ourselves being part of a group of amazing Latina women that were trying to create a platform for Latinas. Um, it's really important representation matters in anything that you do. And oftentimes as Latinas, we don't see ourselves in positions of leadership. And so we came together. Um, I always like to say like Voltron, we came together um, because we wanted to make sure that every Latina, um, whether you were two years old to 15 to 75 to 95, knew that they, um, were empowered to do uh, whatever they could um, and that they were leaders in their own right, regardless of title. Um, and so it's been a beautiful journey with Elsa. Um, and so the work that she does is so important, especially because, um, you know, oftentimes we other people, right? Um, and we disregard people that way by othering them. And so she's really been able to put a human face uh, to the stories and to the people that are impacted by some of the unjust policies um, that we have here in America.
Thank you so much for so vulnerably and beautifully telling us a little bit about your journey and story. And Megan and I are over here laughing because y'all, the two of y'all remind us of the two of us and the way in which your voices complement one another and your passions. And so we're just so grateful to be in dialogue with you today. And one of the things that you mentioned, Carmen, as you were telling us your story and sort of the impetus for moving you into this work um, is some of the things that we acknowledge and hope to be a part of amplifying at Rosa Rebellion, right, is making sure, right, that the Latina, the Latinx voice is a part of brokering these conversations around racial justice and gender equity, right, because there is no gender equity without racial justice. And so Elsa, as you tell us a little bit about your own story, you know, we would love to also hear about the ways in which your work has helped to um, make sure that the Latino voice, right, is a part of disrupting those systems that we know were not built for our black and brown bodies. Yeah, well, thanks again. I'm gonna echo what Carmen said. So thank you so much for having us today uh, to talk a little bit about some of the things that we uh, dedicate our lives to. So as I said, I'm Elsa Collins. I'm also uh, from a family of five, like Carmen. I'm number five of five, uh, first generation, both of my parents, uh, Mexican born. Uh, and I grew up uh, as a border child. So I lived in Tijuana, but I would cross the border every day to go to school in the United States. For a time, I was going to school in Mexico. So definitely feel very much bicultural and I, I feel very much both, you know, as, as Mexican as I do American. Um, and for me, I think my experience growing up was different because growing up in Mexico, there is not a lot of, everything in Mexico is stratified by class and socioeconomic status. There's a small population of, of black Mexicans, but not large. And so it's not a, something that comes into play a lot um, in Mexico. Of course we have, you know, indigenous people and, and there is uh, differing views about them in Mexico. Obviously the darker you are, the closer you are to those roots. So I very frequently was always the morena, um, you know, of, <laughs> of the culture there. Um, but basically, you know, grew up in a very traditional Mexican Catholic upbringing. Uh, my mom raised five kids on her own. My dad died when I was young, but she, from a very, early age, I can remember, I always had to be involved in, in whatever causes she was involved in. She was very philanthropic growing up and was always giving back. And I was volunteering when I was really young, um, going to things I, I didn't really understand at the time. Um, and when I got to college, I, you know, realized that the experience of the Latino in the United States was, was different from my perspective, you know? And also, um, you know, I met my husband uh, in college and he's African-American, grew up in the United States. And, and his experience is one that was also uh, foreign to me. Um, and so really understanding that finding my place in terms of how I could best use the things that I had at my disposal to um, elevate the, the conversation and the causes that I cared about. So, Kind of had a, a, a winding road was really involved in politics and worked a lot to turn out latinos to vote always um and so that had been the focus of a lot of my work um and then in 2018 when the family separation crisis kind of came to be known because it was it had been happening for a while um you know felt 
particularly compelled as someone who grew up in that area, as someone who, by the luck of the geographic lottery, you know, was was born in the United States and, and had that in advantage and, and the protections that it afforded me. And so really felt like I had to uh, be a voice and help raise awareness and educate people and bring people closer to that issue because when people first were made aware of it, it was almost so paralyzing that it was almost like, what, what could you do? You know, or I didn't, people didn't really know enough about it. So they couldn't really, they didn't feel comfortable using their voice on it. So really what I was trying to do was say, these are, these are families, these are mothers, these are children, come closer to the issue, come learn about it and understand that really, like my organization is called, this is about humanity. It's really about who we are as human beings and what are we willing to say is okay in this world and what are we willing to stand up for and say is not okay. Um, and so through that work, which I feel is very related to what I do about access to voting and to, you know, feeling very aligned with the work that Carmen does on, you know, racial equity and racial justice, um, you know, came together with her and the eight other Latinas that we have discussed, um, which include like Monica Ramirez, Christy Halbeger, Jess Morales Raquetto, Eva Longoria, America Pereira, Olga Segura, Alex Kondraki. I missing anybody i think i got everybody <laughs> you got the whole squad the whole squad yes exactly <laughs> so with them we really said you know what what does our community need and and what our community needs is investment every day of the year not just every two years not just every four years when people deem our community to be important or to be one that should be focused on and so there comes a demand a cyclical demand for us to you know, react and respond and do the things that these other groups want us to do, but with very little investment or knowledge. And so really Poderistas was born out of this belief that the community needs, you know, our attention every day of the year, it needs our investment. And, and we're here to, you know, empower those Latinas out there to say, you know what, you are the most important people in this world. We believe it and, and you should know it too. Uh, I love this. There's so much there actually from, from both of you. I was um, messaging Virginia and just saying how much overlap there is. So when family separations um, became public um, or more widely known, I was working at a, a civil rights organization in Texas. And I remember we were, we were like onboarding interns and we were prepping the, the lawsuit that we were going to file the next day. And so I was telling the interns like, you know, hey, like tomorrow something big could happen. We wanna do something about this. Um, and so our whole summer, you know, we were, um, the organization was working to um, try to do everything they could, go to court every day um, to see the families being separated and see what was actually happening on the ground. Um, and it was just, it's still, um, and that's what I want to talk about that because I don't think people realize it's still happening. Um, and also the aftermath, like how many families um, have just been, you know, lost and they were separated by our government. And now somehow our government doesn't know how to put them back together. And so what does that mean for um, these children? So I just want to make space to talk about what it is contemporarily, um, Elsa. Yeah, so we know that thousands of children were, were separated from their families under the previous administration. And we know that 
there wasn't um, really any effort being made to track these families, to understand where they had gone, had the parents been deported, you know, taking their names, their cell phone, even things as simple as just I, I identifying, you know, um, phone numbers. And so um, it's really um, the, you know, there are organizations that have called this like torture. I mean, we really ended up torturing these families. Um, we still have not reunited every family. It's down to the hundreds. I don't know the exact number today. But um, what we do know is that the trauma is there forever. You know, there, we will never know, you know, what the true ramifications of, of, of what happened. And also, you know, that, that they were being told, some of these kids were being told that their parents didn't want them and that they, that they had chosen this. And, and some of the parents were being given documents in English that they couldn't read, that they were signing away saying, yes, I agree to this when they didn't know what they were signing. And so there are some amazing organizations that have been on the ground trying to reunify these families. Um, and I think contemporarily, while we have stopped, you know, um, returning people to Mexico under the NPP program, and, um, you know, I believe the administration is, is trying to deal with the aftermath of, of what happened, you know, we still have something called Title 42, which, um, is essentially saying if, if an unaccompanied minor children comes to the United States, they're allowed to stay here. But if a family unit comes, they're actually, they can be expelled. And so many families continue to make the decision to self-separate before even coming to the border because they believe their child will have a better chance. So there is still a form of family separation that is happening. Um, and it's really hard, you know, because I feel like we're not talking about that. I mean, this country has almost 300 million people. You know, we're talking about a couple of thousand kids right now. But I think, you know, that number looms so large in some people's mind when it's really actually not. And then the last thing I'll say about it, um, which I think I didn't truly realize until I had done a tour of a women's correctional facility here in Los Angeles. And um, when I saw what was happening with citizens of the United States, people mm -hmm. who, who were waiting for a court date hadn't even really been charged with anything yet. I thought it's not shocking what can be happening at the border right now when we see what's happening, you know, in our own cities with our own citizens, you know, who at that time hadn't even been charged with the crime. So that was really when I started to, to understand more deeply how interconnected you know, the issue of mass incarceration was with what was happening at the border um, because of the permissibility that has yeah. been, you know, sort of in effect for so long that it seems like, well, this doesn't seem that far out of, you know, the realm of what we, of what is happening in this country. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, even yesterday I tweeted something like if people actually went to visit our prisons and actually spent time there, then they would understand why the need to undo our current systems are is so urgent. Um, you know, and so when I was working at that same civil rights organization, I was actually in our criminal injustice program is what we called it. And I actually don't even call it a criminal justice system. I call it a criminal legal system because I don't think justice exists in it. Um, and so that certainly brings me um, to a question for you, Carmen, um, around the work that you've done in the criminal legal system. You know, a lot of times, you know, I appreciated what you said about 
um, the work of Black people benefiting all people, but I also recognize um, that a lot of times our, you know, movements can be more siloed than maybe they should be. And, um, you know, maybe, you know, a certain group of people are not getting the, the light shed on them or getting as much amplification as, as another group. And so I think that, you know, when I would go visit prisons and I think about the people who were my clients, um, you know, lots of them were black and brown. And I think sometimes, you know, the Latin X voice can be kind of left out of this kind of criminal justice movement that we're having right now. And it also includes the intersection of immigration. So I, I call that crimmigration. And so I just want to make space to discuss kind of the experience of Latinx people in our criminal legal system and what we can do to better amplify their stories um, based on what you've seen. Oh, Megan, <laughs> it's so um, important for us to share the story of the Latinx person um, who is being negatively impacted by the justice system, um, but it's never seen as our issue, right? Um, you know, I think we have to understand the history of Latinos and Latinx people in America, specifically Mexican Americans. Um, you know, when Elsa was speaking and she was talking about the previous administration separating children, um, in 1930, there was the Repatriation Act that deported 1.8 million Mexican descendants back to a country that was not theirs. And one of those individuals that was impacted, negatively impacted by that piece of legislation was my father, who at the time was six years old. My, my father was born in 1924 in Anaheim, California, and was living in Castroville with his grandparents and his parents and was taken uh, from what they had owned into a country that othered them there, right? Um, and so it's very fascinating, even myself, Elsa, you know, being somebody who grew up in the border and between the worlds of Mexico and California, me being Chicana, you know, we're not welcome in the United States, nor are we welcome in Mexico because we're called pochas, right? We're called pochos. Um, there, we live in multiple worlds. Um, but it's because if you look at what was happening at the time in the 1930s, the Great Depression was happening, right? These, deporta these deportations happened not only in the borders of states like California or Texas, but also places in Michigan, Colorado, Illinois. And it was done because, the, because they were saying that Mexicans were taking the jobs of white people and we're taking the resources of white people. So now let's fast forward a little bit, right? When we think about what's happened, um, when it comes to um, policing in America, policing started um, really to protect white society, right? These departments were created to protect white society from black and Latinos, from black and brown people, right? So it's important to understand that, you know, the criminal justice system or you called it the criminal legal system, is doing exactly what it was designed to do. It was designed to funnel black and brown bodies and protect white society and white property, right? And so therefore systems were created long before, right? They were used as slave catchers. Um, if we think about the Latino experience, we know that uh, police killings of Latinos 
um, were a serious and pervasive problem um, back then as they are today, right? History shows us that state-sanctioned violence against Latinos began over 150 years ago when the land known as Texas was seized from Mexico. The Texas Rangers, a branch of law enforcement, perpetuated some of the worst racial violence in the United States against residents of Mexican and indigenous descents. From the 1950s to, or 1915 to 1919, the Texas Rangers actually murdered and lynched Mexicans. And so when I think about African-American history, I see the parallels between African-American history and Mexican-American history, right? Because what they did is not only did they lynch Mexicans, they also burned entire towns to the ground. And this violence was not limited to Texas but across the Southwest and California. In the 1960s, the civil rights movement sparked a similar moment to organize in defense of the rights of Chicanos or people of Mexican heritage living in, in the United States. In 1969, police in Denver, sorry, police in Denver um, beat a high school students who staged walkouts to protest of police brutality. But you know what doesn't happen? is that we never see police brutality as our issue as Latinos, because we as Latinos are told to not say anything, right? There's a phrase, um, you know, you gotta be humble, you gotta be grateful, don't bring too much attention to yourself. And so we don't really ever talk about the injustices that happen to us. What we do is we work, we stay quiet, we try not to have attention, we're grateful for what we have, but in reality, there's so many injustices that happen in our community. And if you look at the state of California, the people that are currently over incarcerated, overpopulated in prisons, they are Latinos, they are Latinx people. One out of three Latinos are impacted by incarceration in the state of California. And we still are not organizing ourselves to make sure that our people are not funneled into that system. And so yes, there's crimination, but there's also an over incarceration and over-policing of Latino communities in the state of California and throughout the Southwest. You're literally speaking our language. Like we always want to like insert some snaps when <laughs> our guests are just spitting knowledge and literally dropping the mic because um, there's such a critical piece of this work. I think so often, you know, we think about sort of what we have coined thus far as the racial reckoning that took place in 2020, right? But those of us who have lived this life and doing this work, we recognize that these systems, right, have always been in place. And I think part of what is so critical to calling folks into this work is supporting an acknowledgement of our history, right? That this work did not start in 2019, it didn't start in 2012, right? And so um, I thank you so much for framing how we got here, right? That, um, you know, Megan and I as Native Texans, right? The history, the long history of the ways in which not just this iteration of gentrification, but the displacement of Chicanos and Mexican Americans and their own land, and then the policing and the legal ramifications, right, of where they lived. And there's such um, a, a mirroring in the Black American experience and the Mexican American experience specifically. And I think to Megan's point, there is such potential and power in us recognizing our shared harms and shared pain in this country, 
while also honoring the nuances of our stories as a way to support one another and to collectively disrupt these systems. Um, as Megan says, that were never built for us and do not easily bend for us. And so thank you so much for providing that context and that history because for so many of us, right, because of the lack of education, and oh, I'll, I'll toss it over <laughs> to the resident educator in this space, um, we have not been fully equipped with these stories to understand how we got here. Uh, well, first of all, I want to commend two of you. Um, there's so much I want to say because I've given most of my life to this struggle as well. And as a teacher, high school principal, superintendent, and then professor, part of my mission was always bringing black and brown people together uh, because we have a common story and we have common themes that run up. For me, just tracing, uh, so while we put a lot of emphasis on police brutality and appropriately so, from my viewpoint as an educator, the we, the struggle, uh, Bourdieu once said um, that schools are proficient, they were designed, as you said, to re re reproduce the social order. And so I'm in the midst of thinking through a book right now is that that's been America's great lie, that some people are not as valuable, that some people are less human than others. Uh, so every time we forge these coalitions, we are defying that lie, that myth, uh, and, and it's often been used to separate black and brown people from each other as a tool to keep us pitted against each other so that uh, we were fighting over the, the, the crumbs while the riches go on. And there are two things that come out over and over when you speak about this. Uh, and it's the theme of land. A theme of land, our last session we had uh, a, a mother and daughter who had gone back south and purchased land. Uh, that uh, because so much land was seized um, from black people, the land they tore out and seized it, even when they were free, that land was taken under bogus. That's been a theme in America, is that because you're less human, we have manifest destiny so we can take land. And then I just heard you talk about the land that had been taken, we know, we all sit on land. Uh, and, and the indigenous people. So um, I think that's part of our fight now. And that um, we really have to pay attention to our educational systems. The, uh, you can follow the stories of, of segregation of schools all the way down the line of blacks and brown. And so, but the other, uh, so land and color are two themes that run throughout America's history, and they've been used to marginalize people, to perpetuate cruelty on people. So I'm very interested in what's happening with those children on that border and the kind of educational system that they will face. And what do they face after they leave the border? Because schools are perfect. Uh, part of our humanity is tied up in culture and language. And those are the two things that schools take from children when they come, if, if their language is different and their culture. I want to say a couple of other things. I have a friend who um, used to work with high school students and take 
African-American and Latino students into parts of Mexico where there is that blending of Black and, and uh, um, Mexicans. And I was just so, our, our histories are so parallel. Uh, he started me to understanding the connection between Mexico and African-Americans going back to slavery when the slaves would run, we talk about the Underground Railroad. Well, Mexico was an underground or maybe on-ground uh, railroad uh, that refused to give them back when the slave hunters. But by the same token, when Mexico was fighting for its freedom, all throughout Mexico and many of those cities are statues to Black warriors who helped Mexico win its independence. So I'm always telling my students when I was with high school students that people have divided you in America because it serves their purpose to divide you. But your histories go back farther than what we can see here. This Los Angeles itself was settled. But so I think what the work you're doing by coalition building, you're disrupting the lie about um, of our lack of humanity. You're disrupting it. You're embracing. We're embracing one another's struggle. We're embracing, no matter what people say about either one of us, we're embracing our common humanity. And we're embracing the history that has brought us to this moment. And two young women like you are living it out. You are made, you. So when uh, last time we talked about the difference between interrupting systems and disrupting systems. But when you get down to the humanity level where our lives are blended and we recognize one another's humanity, I call that real disruption. So I want to commend you. I admire you. Oh, man. You know, talk about the snaps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, doing black and brown solidarity work is not easy. And it's to your point about wanting to separate us and give us crumbs, right? And it really creates this, um, this scarcity, right? Like there's not enough. There's this, you know, uh, there's not enough for us. So therefore we're going to take from you. Um, but when you talked about the connection to Mexico and to um, uh, people who were enslaved, right? Um, you know, I always talk about the first president of the Americas was who was actually um, black was not Barack Obama. It was Vicente Guerrero, who was the second president of Mexico in 1829. Um, and I also talk about the fact that when we were colonized, when they took our empire, Tenochtitlan, the Spaniards brought had they brought, um, you know, Africans that they had enslaved and the Spaniards bred amongst each other and they put the, the Africans that they had enslaved along with the indigenous people, right? And, um, and so there was this interbreeding that happened um, amongst us. And so, you know, there's, I always talk about this connection because when I was growing up, I had an aunt who lived in Tecate, she lived in a border town and she looked like a black woman. You know, and I came from, you know, California playing basketball and I used to then go to 
to Tecate and I'd be like, my Aunt Valentina looks like a black woman, you know? And um, I later learned that she was a black Mexican and it's that history that is taken from our schools to rip our dignity away from us, to take everything that connects us to one another, right? Whether um, it's our pain or whether it's our joy. And so I really appreciate one of the things, you know, my father being 94 when he passed, my mother's 20 years younger, they had me and, you know, my father was in his 50s. I love history. I love to figure out how are we all interconnected? Because oftentimes that history will be taken out and what they will give us is they'll give us the identity that they laid out for us by saying, you are gang members, you are killers, you are rapists, you are this, you are that to dehumanize us to your point to say that we are not good enough, right? And so I just wanted to honor that because I don't think, especially when people talk about doing black and brown solidarity work or when people talk about doing black and brown work or they, they use this black and brown frame, there's not enough of the brown that's in the conversation, right? And there's not enough of the education of those of us, right? And, and even because there's so many complexities, even within our own community, right, that we're trying to understand. People are Ecuadorian, Dominican, Puerto Ricanos, you know, they're, they're all these different uh, folks. And so I just wanted to thank you for recognizing that as, as people who live in Texas and who understand the parallels between Mexican Americans and African Americans. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I'm literally getting shivers because um, uh, for those of you that are tuning in, um, I'm actually in Los Angeles taping this particular episode live with G-Mom, which is the first time we've been able to do this because of this global pandemic. And so I'm sitting in the living room with the books of my grandfather, the books of my grandmother. And so um, the, the power of history has been such an important value in my life, right? That it sets the tone and the context of how we should navigate this world and this experience in, in North America. And then sitting next to one of the most incredible wordsmiths I know, one of the best storytellers that I know. Um, and so, um, Elsa, I would love to kind of hear from you, you know, your work as sort of a social impact broker, facilitator, right? You understand the power of story and the power of language, which for us is so connected to history. And so when we think about this idea of not just reclaiming physical lands, but reclaiming our space in this land as people of color, particularly as brown people, as black people, we believe that language can be a huge tool for that reclamation, for that disruption, or as G-Mom said, interruption. And so I would love for you to talk to us a little bit about the power of language, particularly as Latinas. Um, what is what is some of the ways in which you have reclaimed your stake in these conversations of political agency and cultural agency, um, even understanding the nuances, you know, um, as a native Texan, Hispanic and Chicano, right, were very much terms I grew up with, right, but I spent most of my summers in California, so it was Latina, right, um, and then now we've got this term of Latinx, which is a little bit more broader, and it includes the whole diaspora and also gender equity or gender diversity. Um, and then to hear you, Elsa, you talked about, you know, been growing up hearing the term Morena. And I remember back in high school, I traveled to Acapulco with my soccer team. And I remember all of the fans there calling me Morena, Morena. And I was like, what? I didn't understand 
And I realized, you know, it was around the complexity of my skin, right? And so I would just love for you to talk us through sort of how you've leveraged language and storytelling to um, create this space for the Latino voice. Yeah, that's such a layered question. Um, you know, I think like my first thought when you when you talked about language was a, a very clear example of of how language has been used to uh, create distance between um, what situations that happen and how we perceive them or how we feel about them. So right now, there's a large conversation happening around the number of unaccompanied minors who are coming to the to the United States. And when people say unaccompanied minors, that sounds like a category that you check off. It doesn't mean anything, but what that actually means is children. What it means is children who are coming completely by themselves because that is a, a, a safer option than whatever they are leaving behind them. And so I think that even how we talk about the situation at the border, these, these children, these families, it's that we have to keep the focus on that. If we say unaccompanied minor, it sounds like, well, you know, if it doesn't work out for them, like it's not that bad. But when you say these are children between, you know, as young as three or four to 16 years old, that sounds like, what were you doing at 14 or 15 years old? Is that something that, that was um, a better choice for you to traverse countries alone and, and risk you know, your life essentially. Um, and, and that is the choice that these families are facing. It's a choice between possible death or, or certain death. And they're gonna go with, you know, a chance at life. And that is, that is what um, human nature is. And so I think language is so important because I wanna make sure we use the right terms when we talk about certain situations so we don't feel like it's something that we can have no empathy for. Um, so that's the first thing. I think the second thing is, um, you know, around these self-identifying terms, right? You mentioned Hispanic, Latina, Latinx, Chicana, you know, a lot of the, the work that um, I sometimes do with one of our co-founders, America Ferreira, is, is a lot of getting out the boat work. And depending on which region of the country you're in, it's a different term. And if you use the wrong term, you can be offending people, truly. And so I think, but it's, it's also interesting because that self-identification term is also a way that I think internally in our community, we also find space to feel separate from each other, right? And so, for example, you know, I'm first generation, I'm, I have dual citizenship, you know, so when I got to college, that was the first time I had ever heard the term Chicana. And um, in certain respects, I felt like it, I was othered. They may have felt othered, but I felt like I was othered because I wasn't fitting in this, um, you know, paradigm that they had created for what what you could really be to be involved in El Centro Chicano. And I was not fitting in a category like that. So, so I wasn't involved in El Centro Chicano, which is kind of depressing now that I think about it. Like I could have really been engaged and involved, but that was, I think, a way sometimes when we have these terms, like it's not like, okay, you know, are we deciding between, is, are we going to say black or are we going to say African-American, right? I mean, we, we, that's like a, a one category-ish Kind of a thing you know and so here it's like are you chicana are you latina are you latinx are we gender inclusive are you hispanic are you gonna be ecuadorian or dominican or colombian or whatever that is and and that is something that i then see trickle down you know into i have seen people who are second generation or less first generation people who do not have any identifying connection to their culture 
they don't feel like this is a conversation they're interested in or have any um, desire to um, participate in. And that feels very scary to me sometimes when I think that they ha have somehow managed to consider themselves to be, um, you know, part of, I, I think the desire maybe to be part of a, the higher level of society, or I, I don't know what is going on in their minds, to be quite frank. But I have met people whose parents came undocumented who feel not brown. <laughs> and so that is strange. And, and, I, and, I, and I sometimes think, what is missing from, from the discourse to help people feel connected? They're, they are brown. You know, whether or not they accept it, identify, self-identify, whatever, that is who they are. Your DNA cannot be changed. And so that, but the language and the importance of like helping people make that connection, I think gets um, more and more lost as we, as we have lost the art of conversing in history. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, my husband who's, who's black um, and his great grandmother, uh, may she rest in peace, and grandmother had a very, um, strong like oral tradition mm -hmm. and in in and i was i'm so, i was so grateful i am so grateful for that because so much of the history of their family that came from louisiana you know that how mm -hmm. they grew up the experiences they they went through um that was only told by them nobody else was telling that story their story the story of many uh black americans who you know, migrated from the South to the West Coast and all the, you know, racism that they endured. And, 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 and so the power of that oral story, history telling and language is, is so important for my kids to feel connected, yeah. um, you know, because I want them to feel as, as Mexican as they do Black, you know, and, and we speak Spanish at home. So I feel that there is a strong connection to that language. And it's very important for me to continue to you know cultivate that but i also feel like there is a language around growing up black in america that they need to feel as connected to and so i'm truly rely on my mother-in-law and my father-in-law and that side of the family to give that to them it's it's not something that i can do and so so i'll i'll just end by saying that i think that the power of that language and for them to absorb and and stay close to those experiences when no one else is telling that is is so important for them to then be able to say I know who I am mm -hmm. and now I know how I can be my own advocate you know cuz here in LA sometimes they're the only black or brown black and brown friend that that their friends have right mm -hmm. so their friends are relying on them to to you know contextualize things for them to sometimes educate them to like gauge things um, to be the barometer for like what's okay and what's not okay. So a lot of times I feel like the most important things that I'm doing as I parent my kids, and I always say I parent them very hard, is like you're gonna be expected, you're, more is gonna be expected of you and you are gonna have to deliver in a way that um, doesn't you know, compromise who you are, your values, who your family is, and you have to be the next me. So like we have to get started. <laughs> <laughs> I so relate to that, that hard parenting. I think, you know, um, having to parent as a black or brown person is just so different um, than, than what other people experience. The idea that you want to solidify their identity, but also prepare them for a world that does not always view them as valuable 
um, and that questions their dignity. Um, and then you talked a lot about assimilation and kind of erasure. And I think that's what white supremacy does, right? It tries its best to erase our history, which is often so rich and so full of heroes, um, and then kind of elevate themselves. I was telling, I was talking to some friends um, this week, and we were talking about how in school in Texas, when you learn about the Alamo, you don't really know that we lost. Like the way that it's taught, you know, they have like a whole shrine to it and they take you on school field trips and it's remember the Alamo. And then you become an adult and you're like, wait, we lost the Alamo? And, and America took our stuff from Mexico. Right. And they don't teach it like that. They were losers. So we were just talking about, I was like, not only did we lose, right? It was also theft. And then we build this shrine to like these, these white heroes who supposedly did all these great things at the Alamo, right? And so it kind of minimizes and erases um, our history and then puts themselves in a place that they don't even, you know, deserve. Like, why are we celebrating Davy Crockett? Why? The same you know? textbook <laughs> writers um, that contextualize the Alamo for us Texas kids is the same one that wrote that, you know, slave... Uh, slaves were migrant workers. Um, so I'm pretty yeah. sure it's the, the same writers. Same yeah. writers. And they also wrote uh, what slaves, slaves weren't treated that bad because, because if you own something valuable, then you take care of it. And so the white masters took care of their slaves. It's ridiculous. Um, it's revisionist, but it's also erasure. Um, and so when you talk about kind of archiving really and, and this oral tradition of storytelling and how important it is for us to document our own stories. That is not only what we are trying to do with Gen Activists, it's also a central mission to Rosa Rebellion. Um, and so Carmen, you mentioned that your organization, one of the organizations that you work for is founded by Harry Belafonte. And I think about, man, his history of, of activism is just amazing just the canon of work um that he has done um and so i just you know want to ask a question just around your generational inspirations actually for for carmen and then for elsa like who are your generational inspirations and um you know how do they shape the work that you do one i i want to just kind of highlight something that elsa pointed out um identity is so important when you own it and not when it's perpetuated on you. And so terms like Hispanic uh, were created to anglicize us, right, as Latinx people, to make us white, to connect us to actually our colonizer. And I don't know any other identity that is connected to their colonizer, the way in which Latinos are being forced to be connected to whiteness. Right. Um, and so I just wanted to share that because I think it's important as, you know, when people own these terms, right, we need to also understand the history behind the term, right, like of Chicano, right? Chicano was a term that was a political identity for Mex for, 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 for descendants of Mexico, right? And Hispanic was created to anglicize us, to, to whitewash us, to assimilate us, to take away our culture, our language, everything that gave us our identity. And so um, with all that, the reason I share that is because of, I, I sometimes feel like people are like, how come you know all this stuff? Like Mr. B <laughs> would say things to me. We call Mr. Belafonte, um, Mr. B. B. Yeah, we affectionately call him that. But Mr. B used to talk to me a lot about Dr. King. 
and the times in which him and Dr. King spent together and even Eleanor Roosevelt and these phenomenal elders that did such great work. Um, but Mr. B reminded me, my time, my time with Mr. Belafonte and all the conversations and the, the stories that Elsa is talking about, right, reminds me of the times in which I would just sit with my dad and my dad would tell stories. And the reason why I know so much about Mexican-American culture was because of the stories of my father. Because when he would say to me, oh, Carmelita, nos teníamos que ir. And 1930, he was actually telling me that they were being deported. Like, and he was telling me this very beautiful story that he didn't realize injustice was happening to him. But the people that are um, the folks um, that I feel so connected to are the Harry Belafontes, are the Nane Alejandres, are the Aida Hurtados, um, the Angela Davises, Kimberly, like, Kimberly mm -hmm. Crenshaw's, you know, um, I, I also think about people, um, you know, like Paul Robeson, right? Mr. Belafonte mm -hmm. talks a lot about Paul Robeson, his mentor, and he says things like, um, Mr. B, you know, the work that I do connects a lot of artists and athletes to social justice, right? Um, because one, I think, and I believe that we are cultured people, social justice is not absent from our athleticism, right? We are like, that's what we are. That's what intersectionality yeah. is. Um, but Mr. B says, and he reminds us, he, he says, uh, Paul Robeson once said, artists are the gatekeepers of truth, their civilization's radical voice. Um, and so if I didn't have these amazing, like, like you know, like G-mom in my life, if I didn't have the G-moms in my life, I wouldn't be able to sit here and tell you kind of like why I have this analysis and why I do what I do. Um, but another person has to be my mother and father um, who were just phenomenal working class people who gave everything to their children. I, I, um, so I, I think you don't have enough work. So I want to invite you to another field of work. Okay. <laughs> because schooling is such an important factor here. And the two things that I alluded to earlier that are taken from children of color immediately, their language, which is really an asset. My campaign has been on schools recognizing these cultural and linguistic assets that children bring to schooling. Can you imagine language is the most powerful learning tool any human being has. So part of the dehumanization is to reject the language that children come. Now that sounds like it's not, and, and to promote a culture as if it's the norm, but it, it rejects every culture. But we are our culture, we're the artifacts of our culture. So what does that do to a child? So now we make that link to the, so, to the uh, uh, prisons and to the police. So what we do is turn out these particularly black and brown boys, but girls who have been miseducated, dehumanized, uh, and school has been a traumatic experience. So I wanna say to you that, um, that when you start mentioning people, I thought thinking of Sylvia Mendez and the NAACP and Thurgood Marshall, how our histories come together, because schooling was the tool of our oppressors. 
schooling was the tool and it still is. Um, so, you know, when you're resting sometime, I really want you to organize around this push in communities. Uh, I'm working with Los Angeles Unified, consulting with them on a concept called community schools, where we honor the communities and the assets and the culture and the language, all of that that parents bring, and that they're not these delinquent parents, they have so much to offer. But I really encourage you that school sits right in the middle of perpetuating this marginalization and oppression of people. We need to work on textbooks. We need to work on pedagogy. So tell, I'd like to talk with you again when you've led the movement on uh, <laughs> our schools. If we can count on one thing from Jean Mom, it is to give us more work, inspire us, bring us wisdom, and then give us more work. That's what I was about to say, Virginia. It's like your summer visits all over again. Oh it's our assignment. Our assignment. I used people used to joke and they'd say, Oh my gosh, you're so lucky you get to spend your summers in LA because our parents would send us out here for months at a time. And I was like, Have you been to my grandparents' house? I have more book assignments than I did during the school year. <laughs> I, just, I, say, I have one more thing to say about the stories. I love it. So I grew up with those stories for my family. And they were stories and I didn't even know how to value them, but I realized they were creating an identity in me. But recently in the last three or four years, I'm on ancestry. And you know what satisfaction I find is that the stories they told me are based in the history of this Asia and, and can be proven through my genetic line. It's just a fascinating thought. This is a moment in America when we're going to turn this page, we're not going to give up the struggle. Young people like you encourage me. Don't let this moment pass. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> Elsa, would you share with us a little bit about the, the, the voices in your life, um, yeah. past and present, that continue to um, just provide inspiration for the work that you do? Yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, really, my mom uh, is my biggest inspiration. Um, you know, she, like, actually, similar to Carmen, she was 20 years younger than my father. Um, and he passed away when she was 40. She was a widow at 40 with five kids ranging from 19, my oldest sister, and I was eight years old. And at the time, obviously, as a child, and, and to her credit, she made it look easy. I mean, Thinking about it now, being her age, not even having five kids, I only have three, zero idea how she actually did it. I mean, truly, it is not until you are experiencing a similar situation that you can have any type of appreciation for the kind of sacrifices that she made for, for her kids, for us. And for her, you know, she she understood that education was, as you said, G Mom, you know, the tool of the oppressor, but she also understood in her mind that that was that was what we needed to have the most of so we could get the furthest that we could so from a very young age um being dedicated to school was was the most important thing that was my only job as a child was to do as well as i could do in school and um she was very funny she she used to tell me when i was growing up that i could apply anywhere to go to college but because you know we are very traditional Mexican Catholic family. I couldn't actually go anywhere. I had to stay at home. So I took, I took her word seriously. So I applied anywhere I could. So I applied to Stanford. 
I get into Stanford and she says, oh, well, that's great, but you're going to go to the Catholic university down the street. Uh, the benefit of being the youngest of five is that my older siblings were like, I think she has to go to Stanford, mom. I, you know, I know you're, don't like it, you know? And so she was very hesitant to let me go away. And so I was really the first like, you know, female child of hers that was allowed to go away for college. Um, and, and truth be told, that's where I met my husband. Um, and, you know, I will say my mom is someone who um, inspired me when I was young, but also even today to see how much she has evolved. I mean, she had never even seen a black person until her mid twenties. You know, she was someone who, when I, you know, first introduced my husband to her was like, um, concerned, I think for what kind of experience I was going to have as a Mexican woman who was with a black man and, and, and her experience growing up in Mexico and the Mexican culture and how, you know, racist it can be truly. Um, and so I think her concern was, she was concerned actually. Um, and to see how she's now the grandmother of three half black, half Mexican, you know, grandchildren and how she tries very hard to educate herself about the Black Lives Matter movement. She's curious about it. She wants to talk about it. She tells her, older friends about it and you know to see her truly um say like this is important and i need to be a better advocate and ally for that i mean inspires me all the time to to say like she's 76 years old and she's doing the thing and so we all can be doing the thing um and and that i would say you know in the last like 12 years of just becoming a parent to multiracial children um, and knowing the expectation, knowing um, how some people can see that as a blessing and other people see that as being doubly cursed, um, you know, has made me truly understand that my goal in this world is to be advocating for, for all the, the, the issues that are impacting them as fiercely, you know, as the ones that I, you know, feel that I could be impacted by personally. And so, um, you know, just being a mother and, and reflecting on her journey and my current journey um, is something that that is, you know, motivates me every day. And so, um, yeah, I feel very, very fortunate to have grown up with uh, an example like hers that, um, you know, she's she's awesome, basically. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing, uh, Elsa. I think what's really interesting, every time we ask a question around sort of what are the generational voices, multi-generational voices that inspire work, you know, most of us always have an answer, someone that may be well known or is in our history books or not, or a voice that should have been in our history books that wasn't, but it also always comes back to someone in our families, right? And I think that is such an important reminder, right, that um, the, the legacies that serve as an impetus and an inspiration for our work um, can often be right from home. Yeah. Um, and that is from the experiences that we um, both observed, right? And then the experiences that we just lived and then retroactively we realize how it set us up for the work that we're called to um, and our purpose. And so um, I, I thank you all for sharing, for sharing that. And um, I also just want to kind of, as we, we close and we're gonna give Jean Mom the final word is, 
just, you know, one of the things that Megan and I admired when uh, we were introduced to y'all's work specifically um, was the ways in which you have leveraged what we call at Rosa Rebellion creative activism, right? That y'all are truly interrupting and disrupting yes. and co-agitating, right? Um, meaning that you're co-laboring around this larger conversation of racial justice that's not just connected to the Latino or Latinx experience, but the full spectrum, right, of those of us who walk in this world with melanin. And 2020, 2021, the last decade, centuries in America have been turbulent, have been um, traumatizing, have been triggering. Um, and yet, when we are in conversation with incredible voices like yours, we are inspired, we are energized, and so even in this moment of chaos and even in this moment that feels sometimes exhaustive, um, we want to know what is giving you hope in this moment? What gives you hope to keep moving forward? What gives you hope to continue to be brokers um, of phenomenal change? And so if you'll, if you'll just offer that for inspiration for our own work. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, um, it's people like Carmen. It's people like our co-founders at Poderistas. It's people like um you know the everyday latina that is engaged in the platform who is hungry for information and who is putting themselves out there um in a way uh that says i'm open to to organizing and to learning and to motivating and to doing um and and so i think that gives me hope that there are just so many doers out there that are just ready to say like help guide me point me in the right direction give me a frame of reference, you know, um, let me volunteer, let me get closer. And, and, and that's what inspires me, you know, every day, even, even with this is about humanity, just seeing how many people are like, I want to show up for these families. I want to show up for these kids. Like what more could I be doing? And, and, you know, people expect Carmen and I to be on the daily doing it. It's when you have those like unexpected surprises of people who are saying like, put me to work, I'm, I'm open and I'm willing, that then says like, okay, well, then we have to keep providing those opportunities for, for those people. So, yeah. I have to agree with Elsa. I think it's, um, it's our generation that have really stepped up um, and taken the mantle. Um, and the generations that are coming right after us, I just, the last two days I've been interviewing um, young people for a liberation, troublemaker liberation fellowship that the Gathering for Justice is putting together. And these young people I had, you know, first of all, the young people that are facilitating this process are phenomenal. Um, and they've been with us since, one of them has been with us since he was 14, he's now 19, Luis Hernandez and Jasmine Dallafoss, who was about 25 years old. But the young people we were interviewing, the way, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't know if I could cuss, and, and G-Mom, I'm so sorry, but I was like, these kids are freaking amazing. Like, they are shit smart. Like, they want you. I want you to know that I was a high school principal and I raised five children, so I'm not easily shocked. Okay. But I was like, so I thought to myself, well, can they all be part of this fellowship? I'm going to be okay because these young people are going to take the mantle and they're going to make sure that there is equity in our communities for all people. Um, it was so amazing. Yesterday, 
um, a lot of the young people came from Louisiana today. They came from New York and the, the intercultural, um, ness of the conversation was just inspiring. And so I came from that conversation to this conversation. Um, and I just feel my, my life is aligned because I have young people in my life. I have elders and then I have my generation that I get to build collective power and, and pathways to, to empowerment and to leadership development. And I also got to say, we all kind of cute. So that also gives me hope. <laughs> Do not ever <laughs> underestimate the power of, Megan and I joke all the time, like the power of good lipstick, <laughs> the power of a good shoe, right? <laughs> Just to give us that, that little piece of feeling of oomph when we got to wade through some of these difficult conversations. So thank you for that reminder, for sure. For sure. Um, we're going to let Jimon close us out with just a few words. Well, I was just so um, struck by the accounts both of you gave of your mothers, and we're on the brink of Mother's Day. And of course, every day is Mother's Day. And uh, it paralleled, you know, my grandmother was widowed with 10 children. And if you were to count in dollars and cents how she did it, it doesn't even make sense. Um, so your mothers are worthy of so much to one to have created young women like you but who devoted themselves to the next generation coming after them and who value if no one else did they valued your humanity and made you feel that made you know that you were worth every sacrifice that they made on your behalf so I would just love to just honor them as we end this conversation. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Gen Activist Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. We know we did. You can learn about the amazing work of Carmen and Elsa and Podoristas at podoristas.com. Now check out these words of wisdom from G-Mom. I know, I'm not sure, and whether it's in the form of organized religion or whatever it is, there is a spiritual quality that leads us. There is a faith in one another as human beings, a faith that there is a better day, a faith that when I raise this child, she or he is gonna be a contribution to this world. And I'm part of making that. So I think that's a really good note to end on.